Hello everyone! My name is Brigitte Desjardins and I'm a second year family med resident at DAL in the North Nova program. I created this podcast as part of my resident project in hopes of going through the basics of RSI pharmacology that early learners can use prior to their ED or SIM days. I've also created a PowerPoint presentation to go along with the podcast if people wanted to follow along with a visual aid. The specific objectives of this podcast are to go through the different drugs that are commonly used in RSI and go through some of their properties as well as some clinical examples of when they're used. Okay, so we'll start with the drug classes that are used very generally. We're going to go uh, talk about the common agents in each class and their properties and really try to simplify things. These drugs are all given before intubating, so we've already made the decision to intubate. Now we're thinking about what to give to the patient before trying to get the tube in. The pharmacology can be broken down into four phases. One, the pre-induction agents. Two, the induction agents, which have also been named sedation drugs in some of the literature I've read. Three, the neuromuscular blocking agents, aka paralysis agents. Four, post-intubation agents, which we will not be going over today. So we'll actually be starting with the induction agents, and I'm intentionally starting here because I found that to understand the pre-induction agents and why we use them, we want to know the effects of the induction and paralytic agents first. So some of the things we want to think about when selecting induction agents are, does it provide analgesia? Does it provide amnesia? What are its anticipated hemodynamic effects and the pharmacokinetics of it, meaning what is the onset and the duration of action? We're going to go over three main drugs in this class, starting with Atomidate, Ketamine, and Propofol. There are more induction agents out there, but these are the three most commonly used. So Atomidate is an imidazole derivative. It's classified as a non-barbiturate hypnotic drug. As with most sedative agents, it works by enhancing the effects of the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. One of the great things about Atomidate is that it's hemodynamically neutral, by being a strong stimulator of the alpha-2 adrenergic receptors centrally. And by hemodynamically neutral, this means it has minimal effect on blood pressure and heart rate. It's dosed at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram IV, and if using in shock, you have to half the dose, which would be then 0.15 milligrams per kilogram IV. It does provide amnesia. It does not provide analgesia. The onset of action is between 15 to 30 seconds. The duration of action is quite short, which is a good thing generally, and it's between 3 and 12 minutes. This is something that you need to be aware of because by the time you push the drug and intubate the patient, you need to be thinking about post-intubation sedation quickly since the drug wears off rapidly. Because of the hemodynamically neutral property, Atomidate is a good option to use in patients where you want to avoid significant changes in blood pressure, like head injury or stroke patients. Another scenario where Atomidate is a good choice is with patients with known or suspected cardiovascular disease. There are two main clinical scenarios where Atomidate should be avoided if possible. The first is in patients with status epilepticus, since Atomidate has been shown to increase seizure activity in EEG studies, so it's not the first choice, although not contraindicated. The second is for sepsis patients, since Atomidate has been shown to cause transient cortisol suppression and could increase mortality in those patients. The data for a cause-effect relationship is still lacking, so it's not, again, contraindicated in sepsis. It might just not be the best choice in those patients. Other notes for Atomidate is that it can cause pain with injection, it can cause involuntary myoclonic movements, as well as nausea and vomiting as side effects. The next drug we're going to talk about is ketamine. 
Ketamine is a phenocyclidine derivative. It's a non-competitive NMDA receptor antagonist that blocks glutamate, which is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the CNS. It, blinds to, it binds to many different kinds of receptors, including being an agonist to the opioid receptor, which explains its effect on analgesia. Hemodynamically, it increases heart rate and blood pressure by decreasing catecholamine reuptake. It also tends to preserve respiratory drive. It's dosed at 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV for RSI, which would be in the dissociative dose range. It does cause amnesia and does provide analgesia. The onset of action is between 45 to 60 seconds. The duration of action is 10 to 20 minutes. Another property of ketamine is that it causes bronchodilation, which means that it's favorable to use in patients with reactive airway diseases. Because it increases heart rate and blood pressure, it's often the go-to choice in patients that are high risk of hypotension, like sepsis, where etomidate wouldn't be our first line. It should be used with caution in patients that are hyper or normotensive with ischemic heart disease, as well as patients with signs of increased ICP or seizing patients since it's stimulating compared to other induction agents. Other notes for ketamine is that it can cause hypersalivation. It can cause psychomimetic effects like hallucinations, nightmares, vivid dreams that are sometimes called emergence reactions in the literature, and this can be minimized with benzodiazepines in the adult population. Conveniently, ketamine can be given IM if IV access is lost or unavailable. And adverse reactions to be aware of include laryngospasm if used alone, which is rare. And it also is important to consider that it can increase cardiovascular toxicity effects of cocaine and TCAs. The last induction agent we'll be discussing today is propofol. Propofol is an alkyl phenol derivative that is classed as an anesthetic induction sedative hypnotic. For those of you that have never worked with it before, it looks like a milky white liquid. It causes global CNS depression, presumably by being a GABA-A receptor agonist and by reducing glutamate activity through NMDA receptor blockade. Hemodynamically, it has risks of profound hypotension. It's dosed at 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV. It does provide amnesia. It does not provide analgesia. Propofol's onset of action takes 15 to 45 seconds. The duration of action is 5 to 10 minutes. It is a good drug to use in status epilepticus patients that are hemodynamically stable due to the increased GABA activity it produces. It can also be used in patients with reactive airway disease since it does cause bronchodilation. Overall, there are no absolute contraindications for propofol, but it's not the first-line drug in unstable patients, hypotension patients, sepsis, or head injury patients due to its side effect of profound hypotension. Adverse effects are pain with injection, and it's contraindicated in patients with egg or soy allergy. And it's a good thing um, about it is, is that it does have anti-emetic and anti-pruritic properties. So I added a slide that recaps the clinical scenarios that I mentioned in the PowerPoint that I made, but I won't go over them again. Um, since we've gone through the main induction agents, we'll go through the next phase of RSI pharmacology, which is neuromuscular blocking agents. Um, in a typical RSI, neuromuscular blocking agents, or NMBAs, are given immediately after the induction agent. There's two classes of NMBAs, depolarizing and non-depolarizing. Both classes work on the acetylcholine receptor at the neuromuscular junction. As a recap, for those of us that don't remember, when acetylcholine binds to the receptor, it causes firing of motor neurons, which cause muscle contractions during voluntary movements. The depolarizing NMBAs work by mimicking acetylcholine. It binds to the receptor, 
causing a muscle contraction, which is known as fasciculations, and it can be seen visibly on the patient. Fasciculations are followed by muscle relaxation. The drug stays binded to the receptor, preventing repolarization and further contraction. The only available depolarizing NMBA readily available for clinical use is succinylcholine. On the other hand, the non-depolarizing agent also acts by binding to the acetylcholine receptor, but as the name suggests, it does not cause a muscle contraction. Instead, it, it blocks acetylcholine from activating the receptor by working as a competitive antagonist. Although there are lots of non-depolarizing agents on the market, the most commonly used one for intubation at conventional doses is rocuronium due to its rapid onset. The other drugs aren't as fast acting. So let's start with the depolarizing agent uh, that is succinylcholine. The dosing is one to two milligrams per kilogram. The onset of action for succinylcholine is less than a minute. The duration of action is five to 10 minutes. So it's quick on and quick off. Succinylcholine can have potentially serious side effects that clinicians need to be aware of when using it. The first is that it can increase serum potassium, usually by 0.5 to 1 milliequivalents per liter, due to that initial muscle contractions that it produces. Thankfully, the, this is clinically irrelevant in most patients, but it could be considered um, for any patients with baseline hyperkalemia, like hemodialysis or renal failure patients. Symptomatic hyperkalemia can also be an issue for subacute burn and denervation injury. Because these injuries can cause the development of acetylcholine receptors outside the neuromuscular junction, and this is usually after the first 24 hours. Those additional receptors result in a more significant increase in serum potassium if the patient is treated with sucks. Patients with certain genetic muscular disorders like muscular dystrophy should also not be receiving sucks for intubation since they also have an exaggerated release of potassium. Succinylcholine is a trigger for malignant hyperthermia, which can be life-threatening when susceptible individuals are exposed. Although malignant hyperthermia events are rare, occurring in approximately 1 in 50,000 adult anesthesias, susceptibility in the general population may be as high as 1 in 2,000. Malignant hyperthermia is characterized by generalized muscle contraction, tachycardia, hypercarbia, tachypnea, hypoxemia, acidosis, arrhythmias, and hyperthermia as a late sign. Dantrolene at, dosed at 2.5 milligrams per kilogram is the definitive treatment and should be given, given ASAP when signs and symptoms occur. So if you're using sucks in a patient who has never had exposure to a general anesthetic, make sure to have access to dantrolene in case of this rare life-threatening emergency. Other notes for succinylcholine is that it can increase intraocular pressure, so rocuronium may be a better choice in patients with open eye injuries. Succinylcholine can cause cardiac dysrhythmias, mainly bradycardias, that usually happen after repeat dosing. So if you need to give a second dose of succinylcholine, you should give atropine to mitigate this side effect. Succinylcholine may decrease time from induction to oxygen desaturation, especially in, in obese patients. Uh, we'll go over rocuronium now. Rocuronium is being used more and more frequently in the emergency departments. It's recommended for use when sucks is contraindicated. However, uh, recent studies show that it's just as effective as succinylcholine when used at higher doses, which is doses of 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Its onset of action is between a minute and a minute and a half, and it lasts for 45 to 80 minutes, which is a big difference compared to succinylcholine. Because it lasts so long, it's really important for post-intubation sedation to be used rapidly after intubation. 
There are some studies that show that because the onset of action of rock is longer, it may be an idea to give the rock first and then give the induction agent so that the onset of both drugs line up better. This is by no means a recommendation at this time, but it's just something I wanted to mention in case you wanted to chat with your staff about it. Although neuromuscular blockade reversal agents exist, they're usually rarely used in the context of emergent RSI. Um, the main agent to reverse rachuronium is named Sugamidex, and it's dosed at 16 milligrams per kilogram. The onset of action is between 1.5 to 3 minutes, and it lasts for several hours. It works by encapsulating the rock molecules and dissociating them from the acetylcholine receptor. It, it has risks of uh, bradycardia and anaphylaxis, so ECG monitoring should continue during and after it's given, and epi and other recessed drugs should be available quickly. Occasionally, it can make clinical sense to reverse the paralytic. One example would be if you need a neuro exam on a stroke or head injury patient within a short time frame after intubation. Reversal is not generally helpful in the setting of a failed RSI or the can't oxygenate, can't ventilate patient. And this is because it either takes too long for the drug to work to be clinically relevant, or the reason they needed to be intubated in the first place still exists, which means that you need to proceed to a surgical airway rather than reversing the paralytic. So now that we've gone through the induction agents and paralytics, we'll chat about some of the drugs that we might think about as an adjunct or pre-induction agents. I kept this one for the end since sometimes we need to think about the properties of our induction agents and paralytics when we decide on a pre-induction agent or not. I'll put a reminder here that the goal of RSI is to induce unconsciousness and paralysis rapidly and safely for intubation. So adding more meds isn't always necessary and it could complicate an already stressful situation. The pre-induction drugs are sometimes remembered using the acronym LOAD, which means lidocaine, opiates, atropine, and defasciculating dose. When used, they're usually given three to five minutes prior to induction drugs. One of the goals of pre-induction medications might be to blunt the reflex sympathetic response to laryngoscopy, which is a release of catecholamines caused by the manipulation of the airway during intubation. This can lead to increased blood pressure, heart rate, and reduce uh, or induce the cost reflex that can increase ICP, which can be detrimental in some clinical scenarios. The first drug that we'll talk about is lidocaine. Because it can blunt the sympathetic drive associated with laryngoscopy, it's been historically listed as a pre-induction consideration in head injury cases. This has been less common in recent years as the, uh, there's no evidence on improvement in neurological outcomes. Important adverse reactions to consider with lidocaine are bradydysrhythmias, hypotension, and remembering that it's contraindicated in patients with amide or um, allergy or sensitivity. O, um, so moving on to the O for the acronym, um, and that's for opioid, and the most commonly used one is fentanyl. Um, this is the one that I'll talk about. So not only does it provide analgesia and sedation, but it does help to block the sympathetic surge associated with laryngoscopy. This is particularly useful in patients with concerns of an increased ICP or cardiovascular disease, especially when being treated with etomidate that doesn't provide analgesia or blunt the sympathetic drive. Because it can depress the cardiorespiratory system, it should be thought about in patients that are hyper or normotensive and should be avoided in cases of shock. A is for atropine that should be readily available for symptomatic bradycardia, um, but it's not recommended for regularly for pretreatment in adults. The evidence is questionable for its use in 
as irregular pre-induction agents in children. Um, however, it's used in this reason for infants that are less than a year old specifically. It should be given prior to the second dose of sucks, as previously mentioned. Um, as our last point, uh, the D for D fasciculating dose. Um, so the non-depolarizing NMBAs drugs like rocuronium have been used in sub-therapeutic doses to prevent the fasciculations that happened when using succinylcholine. This was to prevent a rise in ICP secondary to the muscle contractions that it gives. Defasciculation dosing is no longer recommended, but if it is used, you should know that it needs a larger dose of succinylcholine to achieve intended paralysis after that. And this would be a dose of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of sucks. And just like that, our time is up. We've gone through the basics of RSI pharmacology from pre-induction agents to induction to paralytics. It's important to recognize that there are many important aspects of intubation that we didn't have time to go over in this podcast, most importantly, the complex process of deciding to intubate in the first place and preparation for intubation, including pre-oxygenation and positioning, um, post-intubation pharmacology and care. I hope that you got a bit more comfortable in the world of intubation drugs and can chat about uh, this with your preceptors or colleagues with a little bit more confidence. Hopefully, the more time we um, hear about these drugs, the more we can retain during our clinical experiences. So whether you're studying at home, getting ready for a simulation day or an ED shift, I hope this was helpful to prepare you for your day to come. Uh, I hope you have a great day.